place in my heart, and I'm uh, just excited, especially as the, the church we'll be planting is going to look and feel more like Stonebridge than it's going to a lot of the other Salt Network families. So we're just excited to kind of have that kindred spirit and feeling with you guys. I'm going to totally run into that thing as I move around. So this morning, before we kind of jump into the text, I wanted to kind of see if like any of these like stories begin to like resonate with you guys. Like I, years ago, my nephew's in his 20s now, but when he was younger, we went hiking one time as a family. We were off on a vacation and we get to this spot where there's this like beautiful, huge waterfall. And my nephew is like, I have never seen anything like this. Like, this is so big. This is so cool. And then we get back in the car about 10 minutes later, and immediately the first thing that came out of his mind, you parents know what it was, I'm bored. So this epic experience, like this amazing thing in front of him, and then right away back to like the mundane of like, I'm bored. Or last weekend, I had the chance to speak at Hidden Acres Camp, and so my family and I, we get up there on Saturday afternoon, and like we're just having some fun, we're blobbing each other in the lake, and our dog was with us. Our dog went down the, uh, the water slide into the lake. I don't think she knew what she was doing, um, but it was really funny for us to watch. But so having this like fun time as a family, and there's like so much more fun that could be happening at Hidden Acres, but we didn't have time for it all, and like one of my kids right away is like, but I want more. And is not, in, not able to like really fully enjoy and live in the moment, that experience of being able to like, of that epic experience, you get back into the mundane and it's kind of that like, what's next? Or even like my, my wife and I years ago started a, a journey to become debt free. And it's like, we're just like for, for years, it felt like just pushing and pushing and pushing with this goal and this epic thing. And then we finally hit send on the last thing. And we're kind of like, man, now What? Now that this epic battle, this epic struggle is gone, it's kind of just like back into the mundane and normal. I don't know if any of those stories resonate with you, if you've had those moments in life, but like that's kind of where this text is today. Like last week, if you're tracking along, is this like epic, literal mountaintop experience. Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and like the God shows up, and the ram shows up, and there's all this thing where it's like, that was like mind-blowing mountaintop epic experience. And then you turn the page, you get into the text for today, and it's kind of just that mundane, almost like, what is going on? So I don't know if you have that feeling of, like, it's sometimes hard to see God working in the mundane. Obviously, we can see God in those mountaintops. You can experience God in the valleys. But what about just, like, when you're in, like, that plateau of life, that things where it just doesn't seem like it's the majors? You just begin to wonder, like, where is God moving in this? So this week, what we're going to be going through is Genesis 23, 24, and 25. And what you see in this passage, and I'll give you kind of a quick flyover, then we'll dive a little deeper in, is Sarah dies as an old woman. A servant goes to find a wife for Isaac, and then Abraham dies. Real riveting. It's just kind of the mundane stuff of life after that mountaintop experience. But what I want you to see that God is still moving even in the midst of this. This seems so anticlimactic, especially in light of last week, but yet I want to focus on the bigger story of what God is doing in his story and not get lost in the smaller details of what might seem like an insignificant story. 
So before we move forward, let's review kind of, let's, let's anchor this back in the text of where the bigger story of Genesis is going. And so if you've been tracking along, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you realize really the book of the whole Bible is like one continuous story arc from the beginning until the end. And the promises that we saw in Genesis 12 when God first called Abraham, Abram at that point, and then we see renewed in chapter 15, renewed in chapter 17, renewed in chapter 21 as God saying, I'm calling you, Abram, out of the land, out of the people that you are to go to this other place and I'm going to promise you, I will fulfill this promise. I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you descendants. So everything else in Genesis and really the rest of the Old Testament has to be seen back in light of that is what we'll see as we go through Genesis is at every new story, at every new corner, there's an opportunity where it seems like one of those two things could be lost. And so it's important that we go back and we continue to anchor what we're looking at as we go forward in the past promises that God has given Abraham. So these stories, again, are not what they appear at the surface. And so I wanna, I'm going to go a little out of order this morning. So I want to start in chapter 24 with the story of Isaac. Now, the story of how Abraham's servant finds a wife for Isaac is about much more than just finding a wife for Isaac. And this is a really long chapter. Even this morning as I woke up, I kind of, as I was doing my little hatching thing, laying in bed, I decided to just listen back through these texts. And like, if we just like sat and read this, it would take us about 10 minutes. So we're not going to read the entire chapter because I don't think you guys really want me just to read at you for 10 minutes. So I'm going to give you kind of the high no highlight Cliff Notes version of this. And if we start in verse 34, we see the servant beginning to review the story, what happened before that. And so jump to chapter 24, verse 34 with me. And I'm just going to begin to read a little bit of kind of this recap of what has happened so far. So uh, to set the stage, all this stuff has happened that we're about to talk about. And then they're at the dinner table at Rebecca's family's house. And the servant's like, okay, I can't eat anything until I tell you what's happened and why I'm here. And so he says, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell." But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. Well, I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, for my clan and for my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if you will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So he continues the story. He says, I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the young woman who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw off your camels as well. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Now, before I had even finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. Now, she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink as well. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink as also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milcor bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. 
Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. At first glance, the story seems odd, seems weird. It's a really long story about this guy that does a really random weird thing to find a wife for his master's servant. Now, there's a couple things to like break down to begin to like understand why this story is important and why the authors put this here and why it's important for us to understand in light of God's big story. So first of all, Abraham's command to the servant was, go take a wife from my son, not from the people who we're dwelling in, but go find her back from my family's clan. Now, you might at first begin to wonder, like, is there something like special and noble about Abraham's people that he came from? Well, the answer is really no. Because you remember, like the Canaanite people that he lives in is a polytheistic religious people. So there's all sorts of gods that they worship, and they do not know Yahweh, the Lord God, who is called Abraham. But Abraham's family doesn't either. So Abraham's family, he was called out of that same polytheistic religion and called to go do this, and that's when God introduced himself to Abram. So there's really nothing special about Abram's clan where it's like, oh, like those are the God worshipers, these are not. So go to the God worshipers instead of the non-God worshipers. And so you begin to wonder, like, well, then why? Why is this important? I think there's a few things as we think back to that promise that God gave of the land. And if we even think back to a couple weeks ago when I was here, we were looking through, and uh, after the the king of Salem was wanting to give Abram all of these riches that he had gotten, And Abram says, no, I don't want that from you. I don't want my blessing to come from man. I want the blessing and the promises to be fulfilled through God. I think there's a similar thing that's going on here because you see, if they had taken a wife for Isaac from the people that they were dwelling in, there's a really good chance that at some point Isaac just would have assimilated in because he would have been one of many and it would not have been most likely his religion, his thoughts, his views that would have actually prospered. And there's a chance that if he had married into the family, then he could have inherited the land that way instead of through God's promises. And if we fast forward the story into Exodus, spoiler alert, they end up in slavery for 400 years and this guy Moses comes along and leads them out of Egypt and back into this land eventually where Joshua eventually walks them into the promised land and they have to like get rid of all the Canaanites would have been a little awkward if that was cousin Tim. And so God is protecting this promise of land and protecting this promise of descendants already by making sure that they're not intermarrying in the clan of the Canaanites where they're dwelling in. There's so many things that could have gone wrong if they had done it that way. And so Abraham is trusting God knowing that he will fulfill the promises and so I'm not going to take the shortcut. Man, I did that already. And it didn't end well. If you remember the story from a few weeks ago with Hagar. And so Abraham is like, hopefully learn from his mistakes and not trying to do these shortcuts and trying to really rely on God in this. Now, you get into the servant. And he asks God this whole goofy thing of like, okay, the woman, like the young woman that comes and like offers not only to give me a drink, but also for my camels as well, let her be the one. And at first, this seems kind of like just normal, like, okay, whatever. But there's actually like, 
to dive into this a little bit more, there's all of this stuff going on where any normal, decent human being that if somebody comes and asks you for a drink and you have a bucket of water on your shoulder, you're going to say, sure, yeah, I'll give you a drink. But for her to offer to water the camels as well isn't normal. And so it's kind of that thing of like if all of a sudden I was like, ask somebody, you like, hey, can I have a drink? And you're like, yeah, sure, actually, why don't you come in and I'll make you like a steak dinner as well? Is that thing that's like doesn't naturally connect. And so the reason for that is a, one camel can drink up to 25 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. One of them. And I don't even know how many camels, it doesn't really exactly say how many camels a servant has. And so with that, and like the buckets that they would have that they would draw water up were like less than three gallons each. And so to water the camels is going to be like 80 to 100 drawings of water with a bucket that they have to water these camels. That is so beyond just that like, hey, can I have a few sips of water that you have? And so this is going to be like a long thing that this young woman is going to offer to do. And so the servant is trying to say like, God, like, I don't want this just to be the first like halfway decent person that comes along. May this be something that you are putting on the heart of somebody to do because this is not the normal offering that somebody would do. And so there's this, there's this faithfulness that's going on and this trust that God is going to be fulfilling the promises of descendants that he has. Because again, whose wife is this going to be? But Isaac the promised one, the chosen one, the one that God said through this son, I will continue through my line. Through this son is the one that is going to receive the blessing of this land, the blessings that are going to come. And through his line, I will give you one that's going to bless the whole earth, the whole world. And so there's an importance on the line of Isaac back to the promises of these land and this descendants. And so eventually that story continues and Rebecca is sent away with the servant and they come back and Rebecca and Isaac get married. And then you get into chapter 25 and Abraham dies. But before he dies, let's look at a few verses in chapter 25 with me for a second. We're going to skip past the first few verses because it's just a whole lot of names that I'm not going to get right anyways. And so that's a good old pastor trick. We'll just uh, skip those ones. Now, starting in verse Five. So basically, it's, he's recounting all of the other kids that Abraham has had through his concubines and through his other wife. And so verse 5 says, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Abraham dies. And verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And so you see this like double blessing that's coming on Isaac. And so there's all of these kids. Ishmael even comes back to participate in the burial of Abraham, his father. But it's really highlighting Isaac, the promised one, the one through whom this seed is going to come. And there's this, this special thing like it's saying that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac and all the rest he sent away to the east. And if we go all the way back and like we could spend an entire sermon going through, like tracing through themes of Genesis, of going back to Genesis 3 when they're cast out of the garden, they're cast out to the east. And so there's this like underlying story through the whole of Genesis and goes into the rest of the Old Testament too where when you're going to the east, you're actually going away from God. When you're going backwards, going back to the west, you're trying to pursue God. 
And so in a way, Abraham is trying to protect his son, protect the promise, protect the investment that God has said this is what's going to happen by sending all of the rest of the people that could come back and say, hey, he was my dad too. I deserve some of that. He's sending them away away from Isaac, away from the land, to the east, away from God to protect the promise, to protect the promised one, because we have to keep this line of the blessing that's going to come through Isaac. Now, if we go back to chapter 23 and look at the story of Sarah's death, we're going to see that this story of Sarah's death is about so much more than just her death and burial as well. And so after she dies, it says that Abraham comes and mourns for her, and start in verse 4 of chapter 23, says, I, this is Abraham speaking, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This is important to really understand who Abraham is. Remember, he was called out of his place, called out of the land of Ur, told to go to this place And so there's this promise that Abraham has from God that this land is going to become your land. All of the promise is tied to this property, this land. But right here, Abraham is saying, my wife died. I own nothing. I have no standing in your land. I have been a sojourner and a foreigner my entire life. I own, I don't even have a place to bury my dead. And so Abraham is living in the midst of this like already and not yet that we might experience as well, where he already has the promise of the land, already has this this knowing that his descendants are going to inherit this land, but right now he has nothing. And so he basically asks, there's this one plot, this one grave, this is the cave that I want. And verse 10, keep with me. It says, now Ephron, who is the guy that owns this cave that Abraham wants, was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. And the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So he's offering. He's saying, just take it. Take the land. But Abraham doesn't want it that way because remember, he doesn't want his blessings to be attributed back to somebody blessing him. He wants the promise to be through God who has blessed him. So Abraham responds, no, Lord, hear me. Verse 12, sorry. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth uh, 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So Abraham listening to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So you get this like weird, goofy, early negotiations of like, no, like take it. No, like I don't want to take it. I want to pay for it. Ah, 400 shekels. What's that between friends? And so it's just this like weird thing that's happening. Now, if we actually like were to like figure out like 400 shekels for that land was actually a really high price. So not only was Abraham wanting to pay the full price, but I think this guy in a way almost was like, okay, you want to pay for it? I'll make you pay for it. 
But Abraham doesn't want the gift. He doesn't want it at a discount. And I think part of it is with the land negotiations of it at that time, if he had just given Abraham the land, this guy's descendants could have come back and said, hey, yeah, that land that my dad gave you, I'm taking it back. And so it was important for Abraham to own his little piece of the promised land, to purchase something that was his. Now remember, we said this is not about Abraham just burying Sarah. Rather, this is a story dealing with how Abraham trusts God to provide the land to his descendants. See, rather than the story being only like one section of the land that Abraham legitimately owns. Like he owns nothing else in this promised land that God has promised him, but this land he now owns. This land he can say, this is it. This is my little thing that I own. And both here and again with the king of Sodom, Abraham is unwilling to accept that gift from a man, but is only willing to take something that God has given him. So in this small purchase we see embodied the hope in God's promise that one day in the future it would be belong to his descendants. In a way, it's kind of like we see this as like Abraham buying this little section. It's kind of like a down payment on the land. Now, that idea of a down payment, my background before I went into vocational ministries, I sold real estate for eight years and so, like, the whole idea of a down payment, when I hear that, kicks me back into, like, realtor mode where it's like, okay, I know what a down payment is. Like, when you think about what a down payment is, it's somebody wanting to buy something, having, wanting to have something. So, like, if you want to go out and buy a house, you're going to need to get a mortgage. And in order to get a mortgage, typically, you're going to need to do a down payment, which is you giving something, buying something, basically, saying it's that promise, it's that guarantee of saying that, like, I promise to pay because part of the mortgage is this thing called a promissory note. And so when you're buying something, like a house, you sign this note saying, I promise to pay that, and the guarantee that I will pay that in the future is this down payment that I give you now. Now, in a way, that's kind of what we see Abraham doing here, this idea of he's getting this down payment, he's getting this little piece, this foot in the door, for that the rest of the blessing can come. Again, as I mentioned, Abraham is in this already and not yet situation. He has already received the promise, but he has not fully inherited the land. Now, jump with me to you and I. We as believers live in an already and not yet situation. God has promised to us as believers that we will inherit eternal life. He has promised to us that we will live in eternity with him, but we have not fully received that promise. We've not fully received that blessing. So we live in an already and not yet world. So how do we live in light of the promise that's coming when we don't have it yet? How do we live here as a sort of sojourner and foreigner where we don't yet inherit our future inheritance? Now, if you have your Bible with you, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to just look at this idea of a down payment and what we see even in Scripture. So the Apostle Paul picks up that idea in two different spots in the book of 2 Corinthians. So look at me first with verses 20 and 22, or 20 through 22. Paul says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. 
And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, there's a little note there where you can look down at the bottom and see that word guarantee. Another word for it is down payment. And so we see that the Holy Spirit living in us as believers is the presence of that past guarantee based on past promises that God has made for us. So God's past promises find their assurance in the Holy Spirit. Now, jump to chapter 5 with me for a second. We're going to read 1 through 5. Paul continues, and he's, as he's going through this letter to the Corinthians, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, who has given us the Spirit as a down payment. So this idea of the down payment. God has given us the Spirit as the promise, as that little section of the promised land, the little section of the kingdom that dwells in us, that dwells with us, promising that there'll be even greater, further riches in the future. Remember when my wife and I bought our first house, we got all moved in, like we did an FHA loan, which means you only have to put like three and a half percent down, like we like get everything moved in, we sit on the couch and we're like, we own a home. Then I start thinking through three and a half percent of the square footage of this house. We own that corner. And realizing like as we would like further pay off the house, eventually, eventually this thing would become ours fully. And that's the promise that we have in God, the promise that we have through the Holy Spirit, that we have given this little thing from God. This This is where it gets so like, interesting, like as when we take a mortgage, we're the ones that are promising to pay. The bank receives our down payment. The bank is the one kind of with the power to like foreclose if you don't pay. But in this case, God is the one giving us the down payment. We're the one holding on to the down payment. We're the one that are holding on to the promise to get the rest of the further thing. And so like it's God's upside down economy that happens all through Genesis of God giving us the promise, God giving us that down payment to be able to say, I will give it all to you. You will be co-heirs of my son of the kingdom. And God doesn't default on his promises. God has never defaulted on his promises. And that hope, that truth that we have in Christ, we can continually take with us as we walk through every aspect of life all the positives, all the negatives, all the mountaintops, all the, the lows, and just the mundane of life, we can know that God's Spirit is continually with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. His promises are continually with us through the promise that He has given us. So may we know that God will not default on His promises. He doesn't need some sort of salvation insurance to prove that He'll come through because God's track record of fulfilling His promises is already enough. So may we now live 
in light of those promises that God has given us. May we know that even in the midst of these slow times of life, God has not forgotten those past promises of future glory. So may we live in light of that this week and every moment of our lives. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you. Lord, not as people who have already arrived, not as people who have already acquired, uh, but God, we come before you, we stand before you in light of your future promises, God, in light of knowing that you have already done great things in the past, Lord, and that you give us promises for great things that we will inherit in the future. So God, I pray this week that as we walk with you, maybe we're in the, the middle of a mundane moment in our lives, maybe we're going through a crisis, maybe we're at like the top of something. Lord, may we know that no matter where we're at, that you walk with us, that your spirit is with us through that, God. So God, I pray for Stonebridge, I pray for myself, I pray for the work that we're doing in Marshalltown, God, I pray that your spirit is continually changing every aspect of that. Lord, may you make us new every single day. Amen.